Good morning, my name's Andrew. Uh, the Bible reading this morning can be found from Zechariah, and it's chapter 12 and 13 on page 673. This is the word of the Lord concerning Israel. The Lord who stretches out the heavens, who lays the foundations of the earth, and who forms the spirit of man within him declares, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. On that day, I will strike every horse with panic and its rider with madness, declares the Lord. I will keep a watchful eye over the house of Judah, but I will blind all the horses of the nations. Then the leaders of Judah will say in their hearts, The people of Jerusalem are strong because the Lord Almighty is their God. On that day, I will make the leaders of Judah like a fire pot in a woodpile, like a flaming torch among sheaves. They will consume right and left all the surrounding peoples, but Jerusalem will main, remain intact in her place. The Lord will save the dwellings of Judah first, so that the honour of the house of David and of Jerusalem's inhabitants may not be greater than that of Judah. On that day, the Lord will shield those who live in Jerusalem, so that the feeblest among them will be like David, and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord going before them. On that day, I will set out to destroy all the nations that attack Jerusalem. And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. On that day, the weeping in Jerusalem will be great, like the weeping of Hadad Rimon in the plain of Megiddo. The land will mourn, each clan by itself, with their wives by themselves, the clan of the house of David and their wives, the clan of the house of Nathan and their wives, the clan of the house of Levi and their wives, the clan of Shimei and their wives, and all the rest of the clans and their wives. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. On that day, I will banish the names of the idols from the land, and they will be remembered no more, declares the Lord Almighty. I will remove both the prophets and the spirit of impurity from the land. And if anyone still prophesies, his father and mother, to whom he was born, will say to him, You must die, because you have told lies in the Lord's name. When he prophesies, his own parents will stab him. On that day, every prophet will be ashamed of his prophetic vision. He will not put on a prophet's garment of hair in order to deceive. He will say, I am not a prophet. 
I am a farmer. The land has been my livelihood since my youth. If someone asks him, what are these wounds on your body? He will answer, the wounds I was given at the house of my friends. Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will bring into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. When uh, Kathy and I were going out, we made the mistake once of seeing an art house movie. I think it was by accident, actually. We didn't realise it was an art house movie. The poster looked nice. It was set in Italy and it looked romantic. It had famous actors in it Matt Damon, Jude Law, Gwyneth Paltrow, Kate Blanchett. Since then, I've realised actually that the more famous actors there are in the one movie, the more likely it is to be art house and particularly bad. But then a quarter of the way through the movie, I just had this realisation. I was completely lost and regretting my choice of movie completely. In fact, I think I only just figured out what the movie was about yesterday when I googled the the, uh, movie to remind myself and read the plot. Has anyone else made the mistake of watching The Talented Mr Ripley? (laughs) Some of you sound like you're too art house for me and your taste of movies. Sounds like you like it. I decided then at that point... I don't like art house movies, actually, because they're just too much hard work to understand them. Well, my guess is quite a few of us might actually be feeling a bit like that with the book of Zechariah at this point. We're about five weeks in, and in some ways, it's like an art house movie. When you read it, it feels like there's a deeper meaning. We're pretty sure that there is, running beneath the surface. But it feels like a lot of hard work to be able to understand what the the deeper meaning is. And you know what? It is hard work. Zechariah is art house. it's, It's hard work and everyone finds it that way, even the scholars. And the thing about Zechariah is the deeper you go, you look down and, and you see that it just keeps getting deeper and deeper. But actually, that's a great thing. Because while it's not simple, the book of Zechariah, it's breathtaking. It's mind-blowing, and we get to see that yet again today. In these closing chapters of Zechariah, we get these intense flashes and images, images of storylines coming at us fast and furious. We, we see mountains rising up, blocking the path to the glory days for God's people yet again, and then somehow we see these same mountains taken aside and thrown into the sea. Some of what we read in these, these closing chapters is so familiar and yet some of it is just so completely foreign. And it's very hard to make sense of it all. But nonetheless, somehow, it's breathtaking. In these closing chapters of Zechariah, we, we rush towards something that Zechariah simply calls that day. He writes on that day 18 times in the second half of the book of Zechariah. 
And nine of, of these 18 times, are, they occur in these two chapters that we're looking at today. Today, it's kind of like we get a preview of some kind of ultimate day that will take place just before the glory days finally arrive. It's like we don't get to watch the whole movie. We just get a preview of that day. And in fact, what we see in our passage today is, is we get three previews, all about the same day. And then at the end, because it's art house, there's a poem that kind of brings it all together. The first preview that we get to, get to see shows us that the day is coming when God will destroy those who gather to destroy Jerusalem. Look at verse 2. God says, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that sends all the surrounding peoples reeling. Judah will be besieged as well as Jerusalem. On that day, when all the nations of the earth are gathered against her, I will make Jerusalem an immovable rock for all the nations. All who try to move it will injure themselves. Over the last uh, month or so, I've been watching the three movies from The, the Hobbit with my boys. And um, my two girls who are, who are a bit younger, they've been allowed to stay up and just watch the first bit until it reaches a scary point and then they've, they've had to go off to bed. But did you know, it turns out the third movie is just one big long scary bit. It's just a massive battle scene. And so the girls got to see about five seconds of that and they were quite disappointed because we sent them off to bed and I spent the rest of the movie wondering whether I should even be letting the boys watch it. Well, this kind of preview that we're seeing today in Zechariah kind of has that feel about it. It points to a dark, threatening day where nations gather against Jerusalem in this intense battle wanting to destroy it. But while the nations have got evil intentions, God has actually gathered them there for a different purpose, a different reason. God has made Jerusalem a a cup that the nations will wish they never took up. They'll be like a, a cup of alcohol that sends the nations reeling. They're not going to be able to, to walk, let alone fight in this battle. And then we get this image of, of the nations being like a cocky man showing off to his mates. They, they think they can walk all over Jerusalem. They think they can just pick Jerusalem up and, and toss it wherever they want to. But like a, a jock showing off, they find out that the stone is much heavier than they thought. And they've injured themselves, again, right when they need to be able to fight. So when exactly is this day? What is this preview in Zechariah pointing to? You know, Zechariah, remember, was written about 500 years BC. So in the last two and a half thousand years, has this day come? If you look at history, it's, it's full of examples of people, of nations, gathering against God's people. So Haman in the book of Esther, just a a few years after this book of Zechariah, or the Greeks in the the years after that, Romans, the Romans in New Testament times, and even right through to today, nations stand against God's people, like in North Korea and and China and, and Iran, and even here, secularists take their stand sometimes, it feels, against God's people. And across history, of course, God has fought for his people. So Haman fell in Persia and the Jews were delivered. The Maccabees defeated the Greeks. The Roman Empire was slowly converted to Christianity. And 
who knows what God will do with China and Iran in the future. But what's pictured here in Zechariah is, is something quite different to those kind of battles and those kind of examples. Zechariah has in mind a day where this opposition against God comes to a final head. We're seeing a, a preview of a final battle where the nations stand against God and His people and they unintentionally find themselves like kindling, gathering round a flaming torch that will deal with the threat that they hold to God's people forever. So when is this final battle? Well, Zechariah doesn't answer that. But luckily, we've got more information than Zechariah. We've got the rest of Scripture. And what we see in the rest of Scripture is that we actually have two options for when this could be. We see the first option in Acts chapter 4. Just after Jesus had returned to heaven, Peter and John are arrested for healing someone and, and preaching about Jesus. And listen to what they pray when they're released in verse 24. Sovereign Lord, they said, you made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. You spoke by the Holy Spirit through the mouth of your servant, our father David. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers bend together against the Lord and against his anointed one. Indeed, Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. What they're saying here is is that the nations raged. They, They banded together against God when they conspired against Jesus, killing him on the cross. And then, like in Zechariah, in verse 28, they say, They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. The nations gathered against God, but really it was God gathering them to do battle at the cross. God was fighting a great battle between good and evil. That's the first option. And yet the New Testament gives us another option as well. It paints a picture of another day when a great battle will happen when nations will gather yet again against God and His people. We see this in picture language in Revelation 19. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and his army, that's Jesus, and his people. The battle pictured here is on the very last day when Jesus returns. So, which battle does Zechariah have in mind? When Jesus comes to die on the cross or when Jesus comes to judge the world? Well, we've got to move on to the next two previews to see if things get any clearer. But just before we move on, there's something that we should pay attention to here as uncomfortable as it is for us. When God gathers his people to himself, opposition will always gather around us too. When God gathers his people, opposition will always gather. It just goes with the territory. Even before that final battle, whenever it might be, there'll always be smaller battles. When we stand with God, people will stand against us. But what we see here in in this passage in Zechariah is that they can't do anything to us that God doesn't allow them to do. God's on our side. We don't need to fear. 
We don't need to lock ourselves safely away because it's God who gathers the nations. He's the one behind it. Some so that they'll join us and some so that he can deal with them forever. So Peter and John in Acts, they don't pray, God, take this opposition away. Look at what they pray. It's amazing. They say, now, Lord, consider their threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. Isn't that phenomenal? And this has got something to say to us. Even if we consider an example that's very current at the moment, something like the same-sex marriage debate, if same-sex marriage becomes law in Australia, in one sense it may well mean the final nail in the coffin of Australia being a Christian country. But it won't mean the end of God's kingdom growing here in Australia. We don't need to be afraid. We don't need to lock ourselves safely away, even if it means struggle for some reason or hardship or opposition. Well, we've always known that that's what it means to stand with God. There's no escaping that. Until God ends that final battle by destroying all opposition to Him, when the people of God gather around God, opposition will always gather around us. In the meantime, while we wait for that day, we trust that God's got things covered. We can speak God's Word with great boldness. We can afford to call even people who oppose God to a better story. This brings us to the second preview that Zechariah shows us. Zechariah shows us that the day is coming when God will enable His people to mourn for the one they pierced. The day begins with a battle, but that's not how it ends. Look at what follows the battle in verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David, this is God speaking, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. Really, this should be translated, the spirit. God will pour out the Holy Spirit of grace. And look at the strange effect that he's going to have on God's people in verse 10. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. Think about what's going on here. The battle's been won. God's delivered them at this point. But their great commander, their deliverer, is pierced. And worse still, his people are the ones who've done it. They've somehow dealt God a death blow. In this battle where he fights for them, they've fought against him and they've pierced him. And here at this point on that day, he's opened their eyes to see it clearly and to mourn bitterly for what it is that they've done. Now, don't you think this has got to be one of the most mysterious and yet sacred places in all of the Bible? I mean, surely it's got to be sacrilegious to talk about God being pierced by His people, and yet here it is. And so again, we ask, when exactly is this day? And yet again, Zechariah doesn't answer that. But we get to see things even more clearly than him. 
in his gospel, John wrote about what he saw. And in 19, chapter 19, verse 34, he says, One of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. These things happen so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. The day that Zechariah gives us a preview of is this day that Jesus dies on the cross. And yet, John also says in in Revelation 1-7, Look, he is coming with the clouds, talking about Jesus. And everyone will see him, even those who pierced him, and all peoples on earth will mourn because of him. And again, another day is coming when Jesus returns, when they'll look on the one they've pierced and will mourn. Now before we move on to see the final preview, there's a couple of things that we should see here too. Now notice that unless God opens their eyes... They just couldn't have grieved bitterly or even recognised what they've done. And it's the same for us, actually. Unless God opens our eyes, we won't see what we've done. Only one Roman soldier literally pierced Jesus' side. But Peter holds all of Israel to account in Acts 2.36. And John says in Revelation 1.7 that all peoples on earth will mourn because of Jesus. Do you notice that here in Zechariah, no one is pointing the finger at someone else? They're all taking individual responsibility for having pierced God. They grieve bitterly like someone who's lost an only child. But do we? Do we grieve for what we've done to God? I've been to the funeral of, of, a, of a child before, of an only son. It was absolutely awful. But I'm not sure that we grieve anything like that. Whether we see it or not, we too have pierced God. And just because we don't see it doesn't change a thing, actually. In fact, it only confirms the problem. We've lived like we know better than God, like we wish God wasn't God, which means that we've lived like we want God dead. Now, some of us have realised that, Our eyes have been opened to see it. Some of us are actually acutely aware of our failures in life. And when we think of some of the things we've we've done in the past, we still feel the pain of that. Whether it was a, a marriage that we failed in, or failures as a parent, or just a time or a season where we we turned our back on God and just despised Him. But I can't help but wonder, especially in our culture, in our day and age, if many of us have just never properly mourned. I think many of us only know in abstract that we've pierced God, but but we don't know it in concrete, in examples. We don't feel it. I remember I once went along to a youth group where a guy from school was going, a guy who wasn't a Christian. And I went to that youth group... just so that I could pick on him, along with another guy from school. And I think we 
actually at some point even pushed him around a bit. Do you know that guy never went back to that youth group after that night? I drove him from a place where he was experiencing Jesus' love, where he might have heard the gospel. And do you know how sick that makes me feel? Not sick enough. I treated his eternal salvation like it didn't matter at all. And there have been other times, not quite as dramatic as that, where I've done the same. And you know what? I reckon we all have. There have been times when I knew I should point someone towards Jesus, but instead I've said nothing. Times where I've said and done things that have actually pointed away from Jesus. And I reckon we all have. When I really reflect on my life and on my heart, even for a few moments, I find that I've got plenty of reasons to mourn. And so do you. We all do. I think that our failure to feel the horror of our rejection of God is actually the source of all sorts of problems in our lives, in our Christian lives today. We don't see the true poison of our sin. We don't turn away from it. We dabble with it. We flirt with it. We justify it. We, we even enjoy it. And without feeling the true horror of what we've done to God, we also miss out on seeing the depths of God's commitment to us. We miss seeing that His commitment to us, it's not based on our goodness at all. It's based purely on His love. If we are going to be a people that truly unlock and see the power of the gospel, then we need to realise who we really are. We are those who would pierce God given the chance. We are those who have pierced God. When I look back over the years at, at friends of mine who've fallen away from faith in God, I see a, a bit of a trend. I reckon often when I look back in hindsight, I see that they never really were cut to the heart with what they'd done to God. They never really actually repented or admitted that they had a problem. If you feel like that's you today, then do what Zachariah says we need to do. Ask God to give you His Spirit of grace to open your eyes to see the truth. So your church can't do that for you. Your spouse can't do it for you. Your parents can't do it for you. Each of us individually needs to turn and look on the one that we have pierced. We're all guilty of this and it would just lead us to bitter mourning except for the next preview that follows. See, Zechariah shows us that the day is coming when God's people will be cleansed from all sin and lying leaders. Look with me at 13 verse 1. On that day, a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. God saves them from the battle. He opens their eyes to see what they've done to him. And then he leads them to a fountain that washes them clean. Do you remember way back in chapter 3 that God promised Joshua the high priest that the sin of the land would, would be removed in just a day? Well, here it is. And having felt the weight of, of what they've done, now they can feel the joy of, of being washed clean. They've pierced God 
And yet somehow through this, God opens the way for them to be cleansed. And we see, we heard read before, the result is that every lying prophet who would lead them away from God is removed. In fact, the possibility of ever piercing God again is gone and instead it's lying prophets who will be pierced. And so again, we, we, we should ask, when exactly is this day? And again, of course, Zechariah doesn't answer that, but we get to see more clearly than him. In Hebrews 10.22, we see that it's by the cross that our hearts have been sprinkled clean and that we've been washed. But think about that. It's through guilty humans piercing God's own Son that He makes a way for us to be cleansed from every evil completely. Like the song, Here is Love, puts it, on the mount of crucifixion, floodgates opened deep and wide. And this is exactly what Zechariah gives us a preview of 500 years beforehand. But like with the other two previews, again, the full effect of this cleansing comes on that day when Jesus returns and sin will be done away in us for all time. The day that Zechariah has been previewing is actually the day that Jesus rules as king. And what we can see now, which Zechariah couldn't fully see, was that Jesus comes to rule as king, that day has two parts to it. First, Jesus comes to rule on the cross as the saviour who lays down his life, pierced to open the fountains of forgiveness. And second, Jesus comes to rule when he returns for those people he saved, when he returns to judge those who stand against his people. We stand between the two halves of this one and the same day, this day when Jesus rules. And this brings us to our final point. Today is the day where suffering refines God's people. Like I said before, chapter 13 ends with a strange poem that that brings together not just what we're seeing in chapters 12 and 13, brings together many of the ideas that we've seen in in the second half of Zechariah so far, in, in the five chapters. Look at verse 7. Awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man who is close to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. Here, it's not God who's pierced, but a shepherd who's close to God. And here, it's it's God who strikes his shepherd, not the people. And yet, Just last week, if you remember, we saw God describe himself as the people's shepherd. And here again, we come to mysterious and sacred ground. This shepherd can only be the coming king, the the branch, the Messiah. And yet somehow there's, there's a blurring of the line between this coming king and God. The pierced God and the struck shepherd go hand in hand. The result of this shepherd king being struck by God is that two-thirds of the people will be judged, but a third will remain. And look what happens to this third who remain in verse 9. This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. What this poem does is it draws together many of the themes of the last few chapters. 
is it says to them that through all the struggles, as they walk down this difficult path ahead, their suffering's not meaningless. It's achieving an outcome. God is refining them. This God who would save them in battle, who would open a fountain to cleanse them, even as they pierce Him, He's a God who can be trusted. He's a God worth following, even into the fire. He doesn't just want to cleanse them, He wants to refine them, and it's the same for us. God wants to refine us. Talking about the trials and and sufferings before the final day when Jesus returned, returns, Peter says this in 1 Peter 1 verse 7. It says, These trials have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him. And are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith. The salvation of your souls. Faith that goes through fire is strengthened. And until faith goes through fire, it just remains untested. When I reflect back on my life, every time my faith has ever grown substantially, it's been through hard times. When I was 20 and my mum died... I had to wrestle with death and suffering and loss and hope. And at that time, my faith grew enormously. When Evie was born three months premie and we faced potentially losing her, as I had to face how powerless I was and and how dependent on God I was, my faith grew enormously. And when people who are close to me have fallen away in their faith, It's been extremely hard watching that happen, but it's forced me to wrestle with what it means to have faith in Jesus and what it means not to have faith in Him. And in those hard times, my faith has grown. Today is the day where suffering refines us while we wait for that final day to come. Because it's in in times of struggle that we get to see the truth of verse 9. They will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say they are my people and they will say the Lord is our God. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that because of you and you alone, because you were willing to be pierced so that we could be saved and cleansed. We thank you that because of who you are and what you've done, that we can call on your name. And Lord, that you answer us. Lord, we pray that we would mourn our contribution to piercing you, the need for Jesus to die for us, the way our heart has so turned from you that without the intervention of your Spirit, we would happily see you dead to us. Father, pour out your Spirit on us so that we can see with full honesty who we are. And yet, we can see the fountains opened for us in Jesus' death to make us completely clean in your sight. 
Father, help us to see that you don't just want to cleanse us, you want to refine us. And help us, Lord, to, in those hard times, to call on you confident that you'll answer. And Lord, to be willing to trust you enough to follow you even into those hard times. Lord, we thank you that you are our God. And Lord, we thank you that you have made us your people. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.